This podcast is on disinformation and glasnost. Disinformation comprises intentional lies or partial lies for individual, communal, social, political, corporate, or financial gain. This may apply to the originator of the disinformation or the amplifier if the amplifying agent is aware that the information or some of it is false. Disinformation is another word for lying. And disinformation comprises mostly exaggerations in subjective opinions and views. Disinformation in the intelligence world can cripple a nation, force an adversary to chase ghosts, leave our strengths untouched, and leave their vulnerabilities undefended. This is normally done through leaked, partially counterfeit false intelligence that's backed up by numerous conversations that are sourceable, as well as open source media stories solidifying a false or partially false story. In this sense, it is necessary to have layers of deception stories around disinformation. Protect the deception with deception. It is necessary to make our strengths appear to be weaknesses and our weaknesses appear to be strengths. And best of all is to play into an adversary's misperceptions about us. Play to their biases. The goal is not only to confuse and safeguard our most precious interests, but also to force an adversary to stretch so thin that they weaken and they collapse under their own weight. As Epstein in 89 suggested, and I quote, the deceived become its own deceiver. The victim's leadership has to be in a state of mind to want to accept and act on the disinformation. The victim has to be in a state of mind in which he is so confident of his own intelligence that he is unwilling to entertain evidence or even theories that he or anyone around this disinformation can be duped. In today's great power competition, oftentimes disinformation, we think about disinformation is oftentimes we think about trying to persuade or influence civil societies. But most often, disinformation is not direct messaging or direct attempts at persuasion. Instead, it is done between go-betweens, between third parties, hiding the original disinformer. That is, it's about allowing, enabling, strengthening, or amplifying influencers or networks that already exist with deception, stealth, and subtlety through intermediaries and proxies executed from our end as invisibly, silently, and distantly as possible. Basically, we are riding the currents of existing networks, narratives, schisms, and trends, enabling those networks and narratives whose goals are similar to ours without a thumbprint and to stem or collapse networks and narratives who pose a threat to our national interests. The way disinformation is used by media normally refers to political exaggeration, lies, partial lies, and uninformed opinions. This is to the eye of the critic. For example, disinformation that COVID-19 is not real or that masks and vaccine mandates should be completely ignored and to not take appropriate risk mitigation measures can be dangerous. Some would claim it is an indirect form of biological warfare. Others claim it is biological warfare. That is to make people sick. And yes, there are tragic deaths. And like many of you, I have lost members of my family to COVID. 
yes, there are people that are hospitalized and suffer, but I'm not even referring to the deaths and those that go to the hospital. Instead, I'm referring to those cases, those people that got COVID once or twice or three times and are suffering long COVID symptoms physically and cognitively, and those people that were unable to go see a doctor or go to the hospital because of the COVID conditions around the country. This disinformation about COVID not being real or not being a real threat or encouraging people to become incubators of this virus becomes also economic warfare. As hospital systems, communities, counties, parishes, and families go bankrupt or into severe lifelong debt. So disinformation can have severe consequences, but in the realm of information warfare strategies, especially in great power competition, information usually plays, disinformation, excuse me, usually plays a minor tactical and technical role in larger influence campaigns. Perhaps it's important, but we have arguably been deceived, distracted, and diverted much of this due to ourselves, an obsession with online, social media, so-called disinformation, the vast majority of which is not state or politically directed. We pour billions, when I say we, I mean the United States government and allied governments all over the world, pour arguably billions into trying to counter, trying to undermine, or trying to understand disinformation. All the while, Those would-be malign influencers are spending most of their time, focus, money, and personnel on in-person persuasion, influence, manipulation, and economic influence. From allowing only some journalists and scholars access to government officials, for example, all the way to lobbying efforts in D.C., Paris, London, Berlin, Abu Dhabi, Tokyo, etc. Blind and broad disinformation and propaganda, and mass persuasion rarely, if ever, work. According to Angela Kudvila, psychological operations is often misunderstood as the preposterous proposition that words can substitute for deeds. Mercier suggests that it is tremendously difficult to change people's minds. At best, mass persuaders can hope to spread messages that conform with the public's pre-existing plans and beliefs. With a bit of work, They will be able to affect their audience at the margin on issues for which the audience is ambivalent or had weak opinions to start with. According to William Porter on persuasion, people are not like targets in a shooting gallery. And the belief in an irresistible silver bullet message is groundless. But as part of a greater influence campaign, disinformation may play a role. Now I want to look to five disinformation best practices as if we are the ones conducting disinformation. Reduce the use of the target's frontal cortex. This is in line with narrative best practices. Be sure the message is easily countered because forcing the other side to counter your message will amplify your original message no matter what the other side does or says. Message should be short simple, clear. They should be able to fit onto a bumper sticker or they should be wordless memes. They should be extremely and immediately exciting, absurd, perverse, and base. Number two for disinformation best practices, mastery of platforms, manipulate cancel culture. Always 
first of all, cancel culture has always existed throughout human history in all political and social wings in different forms, at different extremes, at different periods of time, using, of course, different terms besides cancel culture. Canceling someone or their message may immediately give that person or message a viral reach. Often it does. Use platforms on which likes, shares, clicks, and scrolling views are optimized. No thought and no or as little physical movement as possible to interact for that user to interact, amplify, or play along. That's what we want to play to. We do not want people using their frontal cortexes. We do not want people to physically exert themselves if we want to spread disinformation. Use Twitter rage, doom scrolling, up next wormholes, virtue signaling. Also use platforms that provide artificial viral virality to popularity. That is, the more clicks you get, the more a post is more likely to go viral. Number three on best practices, use of conspiracy theory phenomena. For example, a general need to seek excitement, entertainment, and purpose in your life. Feelings of superiority over other people. A lack of critical thinking. A lack of understanding of the basics of how governments, corporations, and societies actually work. A lack of basic abstract thinking skills. Victimization, escaping personal responsibility of your own failures. And finally, essentialism. As David Brooks says, essentialism sees the world that is complicated in our minds have limited capacity. So we create categories to help us make sense of things. We divide the social world into type and associate traits or characteristics with each. These judgments involve simplifications and generalizations, putting people into conceptual boxes. As Brooks goes on to say, it becomes a serious problem when people begin to believe that these mental constructs reflect underlying realities. The belief that each of the groups we identify with their labels actually has an essential and immutable nature rooted in biology and in the nature of reality. Number four, best practices, target the subconscious, play to foundational narratives, never undermine core values, confirm core worldviews at all times, and we find that the limbic system will protect or wants to protect the audience's core sense of self, their sacred values, their cognitive constructs. Number five, also, in addition to the subconscious, also target the limbic system directly. The limbic system, unlike the way that foundational narratives are tattooed onto our subconscious, has likely unchanged, has been unchanged since well before the cognitive revolution when clan society and homo sapiens uh, moved from clan society into civilizations. The limbic system is something that we're born with, whereas the subconscious is something that grows or is informed uh, after we are born. The limbic system comprises survival instinct. To this fifth point, you want disinformation that instigates moral outrage and disgust, calls, calls users to engage with the disinformation. Make them more likely to comment and share and react. It may cause a person or government to want to stomp out a threat as to just normal fear, that fight, flight, or freeze response. Disgust materializes as outrage. 
also under limbic system. We want to amplify influencers that are already trusted sources. And this can be done, for example, by renting accounts of trusted influencers, something that is done every day, by hacking and using accounts of trusted influencers, again, something that's done every day, and playing to the us versus them in political tribalism, perpetuate fictions of black, the world being black and white, a us versus them, a good versus evil. Now, I want to finish by talking about seven phenomena that may suggest that we should not focus only or even mostly on countering disinformation with our own glasnost campaigns, our own version of glasnost. But perhaps look more strategically instead to collapsing influence campaigns writ large. The following seven points is a summary of hundreds of texts. I'll do my best to summarize these seven points. One, by putting so much U.S. government effort on focusing on disinformation, we are amplifying that very disinformation. Scholarship and government warning warnings lead to media coverage, no matter how much and how well one counters disinformation or analyzes it with only a view to understand it, that original disinformation is amplified. As Mercier says, refuting fake news or other political falsehoods might be less useful than we would think. Even people who recognize that some of their views were mistaken did not change their underlying preferences. Number two, disinformation is a tactic as old as mankind to lie with a purpose. Ending disinformation is akin to ending lying and part of human nature. A good subject for philosophy, but with little practical value. Disinformation began as a tactical tool, a strategic influence, as soon as Homo sapiens organized beyond the clan, producing abstract stories with little or no basis in objective experience. Number three, a tactic cannot be usurped. A war on disinformation is like a war on terrorism, a tactic. It's illogical and unhelpful. It may, though, be helpful to collapse an actual entity, a person, a group's efforts, a government's efforts that is waging a malign influence campaign that may include disinformation as a tactic. Four, there is no evidence that lies spread faster than truth. This is fortune cookie insight. In fact, absurd, ridiculous, unbelievable, wild stories, whether lies or the truth, they spread quickly online and off. It has nothing to do with the accuracy of the actual story. Being viral derives from wildly entertaining or disturbing headlines, whether lies, partial lies, or the truth. Number five, social media companies' models are to sell users' information to the highest bidder at every moment in time. So they hire the world's best addiction experts to keep you online, spending millions for each additional millisecond of your attention. These companies have a vested interest in allowing, promoting, and amplifying, and protecting disinformation. So countering it is unlikely to be effective. Number six, social media companies, some of whom are the wealthiest companies in the history of the world, are enduringly and almost completely unable to stop actual, flagrant, clear, direct, illegal activity, sales of guns, that is direct sales of guns, Attempts to specifically trigger sufferers of epilepsy, human trafficking communications, advertisements, and payments, for example. Failing to stop flagrant and direct illegal activity is a bellwether for 
their inability to detect the many shades and nuances of mis- and disinformation. And number seven, finally, the vast majority of disinformation is unclear on its validity and accuracy. For example, in the run-up to the U.S. involvement in World War II, the words disinformation and misinformation were used by the America First Movement, by Lindbergh, describing Jewish, Roosevelt, and Bridges, and I quote, agitators and propagandists. This occurred on September 11th, 1941 in Iowa, and of course, the day before Halloween, 1941, at Madison Square Garden, with full, uh, full of support from Nazis, Nazi flags, support for Hitler, speeches supporting Hitler, etc., using the word disinformation to try to undermine FDR and to try to undermine Jewish communities throughout the world. But even in a healthy democratic republic, political campaigns can be viewed as battling glass-nose and disinformation campaigns, exaggeration and self-promotion that peddles in oversimplified and skewed personal attack ads, indirect amplification of third-party partial fabrication of opponents, spread of partially true rumors, and often fostering confusion and discontent to keep opposing voters home on election day. For example, most branding and marketing peddles in exaggerations in science, value, identity, and more. For example, popular reporting on science studies, their findings are riddled with hysteria, misdirection, fallacies, exaggeration, and seeming little effort to provide context and possible methodological weaknesses. So who is to say what is a fact, what is truth, and what should be labeled disinformation? The obvious cases may be obvious, but most cases are unclear. Labels subjective. Would even multiple independent and government agencies be trusted to decide what is valid and what is not? As Mercier says, before the internet made fake news, visible for everyone to gloat at its absurdity, it could be found in the pages of specialized newspapers, such as the canards of 18th century France with exactly the same patterns as those observed now. And if newspapers couldn't do it, word of mouth would. Each individual piece of fake news would undoubtedly reach a smaller audience that way, but more would be created. 